we have been traveling through and we see Jesus do a bunch of really cool stuff already. Uh, we see in John chapter 1, we see this guy named John the Baptist, a different guy than John the Apostle, uh, baptizing and kind of being the forerunner, the guy who introduces the, the peoples to Jesus. He's sort of the hype man before the, before the big show. He gets, warms the crowd up to receive the Messiah. And we see Jesus and come on the scene and begin to immediately do some cool stuff. We see, in, we see him at a wedding uh, uh, turning water into wine. And, he's exp- and he begins to say some things, but the people there don't fully get it. And then we see him going into the temple of Jerusalem and cleansing the temple. And again, giving a teaching that the people don't fully understand. And then we see him having a conversation with this guy named Nicodemus, uh, this, this you know, very, very prominent Jewish scholar and teacher of his day. And he doesn't fully grasp what Jesus is talking about either. And we see this theme where continually Jesus has conversations with people and they don't fully grasp everything that he's talking about. And what we see in each time, Jesus sort of pivots. He, he, he gives them the truth. They don't seem to fully grasp it. And then he sort of pivots slightly and hones in on one very clear truth and drives home. I think pra- pragmatically, there's a good lesson learned for all of us. If you're talking to someone, they don't get what you're saying. Don't just keep saying it. Maybe pivot slightly. Maybe simplify it. Maybe hone in on one element. And we see Jesus now doing the exact same thing with a woman in the region called Samaria. So John chapter 4, verse 1, John the Apostle writes this. He says, Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making, was making and baptizing more disciples than John, referring to John the Baptist, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. So Jesus has been bringing disciples. There's kind of a crowd gathering. They're coming to Jesus. His disciples are baptizing them. And the Pharisees hear about this. So Jesus figures, it's, maybe it's time for me to, to take off and head over to Galilee. Um, I think in this, uh, in this section right here is probably a whole sermon we could preach just on this and some of the things we see there, but we don't have time for that this morning. Uh, verse 4 says this, And he had to pass through Samaria, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus was wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Typically, whenever Jewish people were traveling to northern regions, they would try to skip Samaria. Uh, the Jewish people hated the Samaritans, and we'll talk about that just to make why the, why the Samaritans were completely hated by uh, the Jewish peoples. Um, they typically would try to skip, but for some reason, Jesus decides he's going to go right through the country land of Samaria. This is, again, something that you would typically not have done in that time. Uh, I would speculate because he wanted to have this conversation with this woman. He knew she would be there that day and wanted to have the conversation. There may be other pra- practical reasons why they chose to take a shortcut through a region that Jews would have never gone through, but for whatever reason, they're there, and Jesus finds himself sitting by a well that was dug by Jacob almost 1,800 years earlier. It, the well, in fact, is still there today. You can travel to uh, the Middle East, and you can see Jacob's well. It's there. So Jacob had purchased this land, had given it to his children, uh, specifically Joseph and his, Joseph's sons, had dug a well there, and 1,800 years later, the well was still being used uh, by the Sumerians there. Jesus is sitting there, and he says it was sitting there by the sixth hour, which uh, in the Jewish calendar would have been 12 noon. They started counting at 6 a.m. The sixth hour would have been 12 noon. If you've ever been to the Middle East or anywhere in that region of the world, you know around 12 noon, it's really, really hot. 
Like if I said to you, hey, I was at Magic Kingdom last 4th of July, you would go, oh, why would you go to Magic Kingdom on the 4th of July? It's miserable. It's all those people from North Dakota are there, and it's just hot. It's raining, and you're still hot. I mean, it's just, come on. Like, like that's, the, that's the picture that John is giving. It's the sixth hour in Samaria. Are you kidding me? It's got to be blazing on you there. Verse 7 says, A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. So his disciples are heading down to Taco Bell to grab a meal. He's hanging out by himself by the well. And he says, he says to a Samaritan, he begins to talk to the Samaritan woman. And he says to her, give me a drink. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask me, ask me, a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. That was the, that's the little side note that John inserts there to remind his readers, we Jews, we didn't talk to the Samaritans. This was something we didn't do. If, you, if you're not familiar with the history as to why the Jews hated the Samaritans, I'll give you a quick history lesson. Uh, <clears throat> a few months ago, someone told me, I feel like every time you preach, you give us a little mini history lesson. I, I took it as a compliment because uh, there's so much of the New Testament that you can't understand without understanding the history. <clears throat> if you don't understand, the, if you don't know, we'll go, we'll go back about 1,800 years or so in history, uh, maybe a little more than that, to a guy named Abram, his, uh, God says Abram is a guy living in this region called the Ur of Chaldees. God says, you and I, we're going to be friends. We're going to have a contract. We're going to have an agreement. So God takes Abram, establishes his covenant, changes his name to Abraham. And then Abraham and his wife, they begin to kind of wander around a particular region. And at one point in his life, he ends up in this piece of land. And God says, the land you're standing in right now, eventually this land is going to be owned by people that are descended from you. There's going, to be, there's going to be a nation from your lineage that's going to be here. This is the land I promised to you. It was then known as the promised land. Abraham then has two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. Isaac is the one that inherits the, the promises. So all the promises that God had made to Abraham now go to Isaac. And then Isaac has two sons, Jacob and, or Esau and Jacob. Esau was the one that should have inherited the promises, but he gives it up in, in a moment of folly and stupidity for a bowl of soup. He gives it up. So then it goes to Jacob. Jacob becomes the guy who would then inherit all the promises. Jacob ends up having a bunch of kids. Him, him and his, he and his family become a people group that we would eventually know as the Hebrew people, or eventually be later called the Jewish people. The Israelites are basically Jacob's lineage, his family. Through a wild, crazy circumstance of events, they end up in Egypt. They grow in Egypt. Uh, one of his sons, Joseph, is second in command of Egypt. He would be, it would be like being vice president of the United States. He was second in command of the, high, of the most powerful country in the world at the time. The Jewish people, or the Hebrew people, as they would have been called at that time, they end up in Egypt, living, uh, living there in Egypt. Jacob dies, and eventually, over the course of the next 400 years, that group of people grow to be a people group of scholars, tell us of maybe a little over, just over a million people. But with over the next 400 years, the Egyptians would eventually enslave them. So this group of Hebrew people would be slaves to the Egyptians, more than a million of them. Eventually, God would bring a great leader, a man by the name of Moses, to, to rescue the people and lead them out of, uh, lead them out of uh, slavery in Egypt. And they wander around the desert for 40 years. And continually, they're remembering that God had promised Abraham a plot of land and that we would be a sovereign nation, one nation under the one true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they're wandering around the desert for 40 years under the leadership of Moses. Moses dies, and then a guy named Joshua arises, and he actually leads them into the promised land. They set up the nation 
of Israel there. And they are set up in basically 12 provinces, which are the descendants of the different sons of Jacob and Joseph. And when they're in the promised land, they enter into the season, what they call the Judges. You can read about this in the Old Testament, the book of Judges. It's about a 300-year period where there's no leaders. There's no primary president. There's just kind of regional leaders and these judges that would lead the people of God. And then at some point, they ask for a king. God gives them a king, a guy named King Saul. He's a wicked king. God gives them a second king named David. And David would then would be the lineage to rule the people of Israel. David has a son named Solomon who becomes king. And then after Solomon, craziness takes place. And this is the moment where the Jewish people and the Samaritans begin to hate each other. Because this civil war ensues, and there's a break. Two of the tribes of the Hebrew people band together, Judah and Benjamin, and all the rest kind of create their own country. And it become two separate countries. They become the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And for the next several centuries, they are separate. The, the northern kingdom actually only lasts about 150 years or so. Eventually, the Assyrian army comes in and wipes most of them out, kills a bunch of them, sends a bunch of them out to be slaves in different parts of the world. And the Assyrians were really big on commingling their people. As their empire grew, they didn't want these pockets. Uh, later, the Romans and the, the, uh, the Greek Macedonian Empire would also do this, but they learned it really from the early empires, the Assyrians and the Babylonians. So the Assyrians would go and they would take people from one part of the world and move them and force them to intermingle and take people from that part of the world and move them. So this is what happens with the northern kingdom. The, in the northern kingdom, they had set up the capital city was Samaria. And the people living in the northern kingdom had determined that they were not going to worship in Jerusalem. They were going to worship up north in a city called Samaria. So when the, northern, when the Assyrians come in and they wipe out the northern kingdom, they begin to co-mingle. The city of Samaria basically is now populated with half-breeds. This, becomes, this is happening somewhere around 850 B.C. And over the next 800 years plus, by the time that Jesus shows up on the scene, you've got 800 years of co-mingling between what were Jewish people and Assyrians and people from other different nations. You have this co-mingling. And many of them still embrace the Jewish God, but they begin to take religious customs and practices and ideologies from other cultures, pagan cultures, and would begin to intermingle them. And at some point throughout Samaritan history, they basically said, we, we, we believe in Abraham, Jacob, Isaac, we believe in Moses, but pretty much that's where we, pretty much from the time you guys entered the promised land, you Jews have gotten it all wrong. So we, 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 like, we like the first five books of the, of the Old Testament, but all the rest, we reject that. The Jewish people feel like the Samaritans are the ones that have perverted this. You, you are, you're collaborators with the enemy, the Assyrians. And so by the time Jesus shows up on the scene, you've got 800, 900 years of division between Samaritans and Jews. And the Samaritans are people who are, they're descended of, of Assyrians, Jews, and others. And they have basically told the, told the Jews, you are wrong and you're too narrow-minded. There's more to this religion thing. There's more to spirituality than what you in Jerusalem say. And the Jewish people would say, no, no, we have the only true way. We have the true doctrines. And if you're going to worship, you've got to worship in Jerusalem. And the Samaritans are saying, no, 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 you've got to be open to all spirits. Yeah, there's one true God, but there's all sorts of ideas you have to be open to. And there's this incredible hatred, 800, 900 years of division and hatred that's been brewing. And that's the reason why the Jews had nothing to do with the Samaritans. So when Jesus comes right through, Samar right through a Samaritan town and he stops and have a conversation with someone, this would have been scandalous in the first century. The Jewish people would have said, why are you talking to them? They collaborated with the enemy. 
I mean, it would be comparable in the, in the, the Jewish person in the first century, in their minds, it would have been comparable if on September 12th, 2001, somebody said, hey, I'm going to go hang out with some of the guys in Al-Qaeda. People would have said, what? They're the enemy. Jesus goes, yeah, I know you say they're the enemy, but I've got something bigger. Jesus says, I look beyond ethnic boundaries and racial boundaries. I look beyond these things because I have a truth that is applicable to all peoples. I mean, this would have been a crazy scenario to the Jewish people of the first century. More, in addition to that, it would have been even crazier that he had a conversation with a woman. In the first century, women had no value. All throughout history, women have been incredibly oppressed, and this culture was no different. They were incredibly chauvinistic, incredibly oppressive to women. Women couldn't testify in court because their, because their testimony was of no value. And most men would never have a conversation with a woman in public because they would say, it's, I'm, I'm showing her some form of dignity or respect that she's worth my time. And we would never have done that. that that's, what, that's, that's what the Jewish people would have thought. So this, this woman is thinking to herself, I'm a Samaritan, and I'm a woman, and you're talking to me. And there's a third thing about this woman that is unique as well, is that she was there in the middle of the day, 12 noon. Typically, in most parts of the world, uh, in that part of the world, this is still the case today in many Asian and African cultures, uh, the women typically go together, sort of a communal experience, where they go fetch water. Uh, You may not know this, but many people in the world still don't have access to clean drinking water or running water near them. So they have to go to a well or they have to go to some location. In some parts of the world, you have to walk, you know, several hours. And in that culture, you would have walked in a group, both for security and just for kind of a social thing. This is when you kind of caught up on the gossip. We talked about the bachelor the night, you know, the bachelor in the night before as you went to the well and got the water. And so they would have typically done this really early in the morning or really late in the evening because they didn't want to do it in the middle of the heat. So why is this woman by herself in the middle of the day when it's hot. Well, there's only real one, only one rational explanation. That is because she wanted to avoid being around other people. Why would she want to, be avo- why would she want to avoid? And we'll see in just a moment. It's because she was a disgraced woman in our society. It's because of her rel- past relationships. So she's a Samaritan woman who has a checkered past. So much so where she feels the need to isolate herself from the rest of the community. And this is the woman that Jesus sits with and shares a cup of water. This, he begins to make very clear, I transcend. I transcend the barriers, the boundaries. People who are outcasts or disgraced, I reach out to them. People who have been oppressed, the ones that society says have no value, Jesus says they are valuable to me. So Jesus sits down with the Samaritan woman, and he says to her, can you give me a drink of water? Her response is, you're a Jewish man. Why are you talking to me? What are you doing? Verse 10, Jesus says this, if you knew the gift of God who was saying this, saying that you give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Jesus sits to this next Samaritan woman, and he says, give me a drink of water. She goes, you're a Jew. Why are you talking to me? And he goes, wrong answer. If you knew who you were talking to, you would have responded differently. If you knew who was standing next to you, you would have actually asked me for water, and I would have given you living water. Now at this point, she's sort of confused. What are you talking about? Verse 11, the woman said, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? He's like, if you knew who you were talking to, you would have asked me for water. I would have given you living water. She's like, dude, you don't even got a bucket. 
How are you going to get this living water from? What are you talking about? And then she says this in verse 12. Are, are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock? Like, this well is special to us. And you're trying to offer me something that's living water? Are you telling me you got something to offer me that's better than what Jacob offered us? Do you know who Jacob was? He's the founder of our people. Jacob was the man. You're telling me you got something better than that? And you never got a bucket. Who are you, dude? Who's this Jewish man talking to me? This is how Jesus responds there in verse 13. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whatever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The word spring there really refers to jumping. It's the same word in, used in Acts chapter 3 when John or Peter and John uh, pray for a man there and he's healed. And it says that he jumps to his feet. He was a paralyzed man who was healed who sprang up. Jesus is saying, I'm going to give you some living water. It's going to cause your soul to jump up. Your soul's been paralyzed. It's been dead. I'm about to give you some living water. You're going to spring up. Of course, he's speaking metaphorically here about our spiritual thirst, not a physical thirst. We're all born with a spiritual thirst. And because of our sinful choices, it gets amplified over time. Uh, Billy Graham, the famous uh, evangelist and preacher, he was quoted as saying uh, that we are all born with a God-shaped hole in our hearts. All of us have this emptiness, this void in our hearts that can only be filled by God himself. We all have a spiritual thirst that can only be quenched by God. And Jesus is saying, I am ready to quench your spiritual thirst. I think all of us can relate to this to a, to a large extent. A couple years ago, I saw a video clip of uh, Tom Brady. If you don't know who that is, he's the quarterback of the New England Patriots. Quarterback is the guy who throws the ball. He's trying to help you out, Andrew. Anyway, uh, he's a, he's a, <clears throat> Tom Brady is arguably you know, the greatest quarterback of all time. At this point, most people consider him probably the best ever. He, he won, he's won five Super Bowl rings. He uh, is married to uh, a, apparently a very beautiful supermodel. I don't rate supermodels, so I don't know, but I've been told she's apparently very beautiful. Uh, he has several beautiful, healthy children. Uh, he is famous and revered by many men across the country, certainly in Boston. Uh, his earnings, career earnings between endorsements and salary, uh, tops $300 million. This is a guy you would say pretty much has it all. He's, he has reached the pinnacle of success. He's the best to ever do what he does. No one's done it better. He's revered. He's respected. He's rich. He's famous. He's got the, the trophy wife. He's got everything he needs, right? If, if there's anyone who has quenched their spiritual thirst, if there's anyone who is satisfied in this life, it is Tom Brady. But in an interview with 60 Minutes not too long ago, Tom Brady says this, He says, why do I have Super Bowl rings and I still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, a lot of people would say, hey, Tom, this is it. This is what it is. You reached your goal. You reached your dream. But me, I think, God, there's, there's got to be more than this, right? There's got to be more. The interviewer says to him, well, what's the answer? Tom Brady says, you know, Oh God, I wish I knew. I, I wish I knew. So no matter what you have in this life, 
No matter how successful you are, there is a spiritual thirst that can only be quenched by the power of God. C.S. Lewis, the great 20th century philosopher and author, he said this. He said, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger, well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim, well, there's such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire, well, there's such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made from another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy, that does not prove the universe is false, but proves that earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy. All of us are born with this spiritual thirst, and there's only one thing that can quench it. That is companionship and friendship with God. That is communing with the Spirit of God and knowing who God is. See, this started way back in, Adam, back in the garden with Adam and Eve. God would walk with them in the cool of the day. That's how you know the Garden of Eden was not in Orlando. The cool of the day doesn't exist. God would come and he would hang out with them in the cool of the day. But Adam and Eve sinned. They, were, they defied God. They rebelled against God. They said, we want to be in control. They pursued their own divinity and decided that they wanted to do it their way. So they rebel against God. And there, the separation between man and God begins. And, it's, and it stays all the way up until today. All of us choose to sin and we have separated ourselves from God. And because of this, we all have this aching in our soul, this God-shaped hole, this spiritual thirst that can only be quenched if we have a relationship with the Spirit of God and we know Him for who He is. We were created to experience God's love and Spirit and to be satisfied by it. We were created to understand and learn about the character and nature of God and to be fulfilled by it. But because of sin, we are lacking this fulfillment. And only the gospel can satisfy the truth that God rescues humans. And if we put all of our hope and faith in him, he forgives us of our sins and he invites us back to the way it was in the Garden of Eden, to have friendship with him, to engage and cultivate the spirit of God in our lives and to know who he is and to learn more about his character and nature day in and day out and to be fully satisfied in him. Jesus makes very clear to the Samaritan woman this day, there's a problem with you. And that is, that is the spiritual thirst. We'll continue on. Verse 15. The woman says to him, Sir, give me this water so that I would not be thirsty or I have to come here to draw water. She's like, I, I want this, whatever this living water you're talking about, I want it. I know I have been searching for it all my life. I've been hungry. I've been thirsty. Can you give it to me? Jesus says exactly what you would expect, right? He says, hey, go call your husband and come here. What? What are you talking, what? That's not the response that I was hoping for. See, Jesus immediately exposes her sin. She's like, I want living water. And he goes, oh, there's a, pro there's a problem. There's a sin problem. So the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you're right. You're right when you say you have no husband because you've had five husbands and the one you live with now, the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. 
So here's the scene. Jesus comes up. Can I get a cup of water? She goes, you're a Jew. Why are you talking to me? He goes, wrong answer. If you would have known who I am, you would have asked me for living water. She's like, what's this living water? You don't have a bucket? He responds by saying, I can give you a living water that will make you never thirsty again. She responds, give me that living water. And he goes, Who's your, where's your husband? I don't have a husband. You're right. You've actually had five husbands. And now you're living with a guy that you're not even married to. He just completely reads her mail right there. Calls out the story of her life. And this is the moment where she realizes, well, this guy's not just a regular dude. He's, he knows something. Because he he's completely knows my life story. See, this woman had been married five times and now was in a relationship with a man she wasn't married to. This is the reason why she's out there at 12 noon rather than in the morning and the evening because she's a disgrace to society because she's been with many different men. She's the one that's looked, at, looked down upon by the rest of her community. And clearly this woman was spiritually thirsty because anyone who jumps from relationship to relationship clearly is looking for something. And all of us do this. So it may not be for you with relationships, but it's something out there. All of us look to fulfill ourselves with earthly pleasures. John Piper, well-known pastor, puts it this way. He says, no person enters six sexual relationships with six different people without either starting or ending spiritually thirsty. This woman was spiritually thirsty, as many of us are, and Jesus addresses the problem. The woman responds by saying this. She, she tries to divert the question. As we, don't we often do this? We try to sidestep when someone addresses our sin. So the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Verse 21, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You, will, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Verse 23, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. There are only three times in the Gospel of John where John says something must happen, or he records that, that Jesus saying something must happen. Jesus says that we must be born again to Nicodemus. He later in that passage says the Son of Man must be lifted up. And then here he says that the true worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. It's of equal value. It's of equal importance. Being born again, Jesus having to die for our sins, and we must worship in spirit and in truth. She realizes that he's, he's not a normal guy, he's, that he's a prophet or something is special about this guy. She tries to divert the question and she begins to ask about a theological debate. She goes, uh, well, okay, what, what about worship? Should it be in Jerusalem or should it be, in, should it be here in Samaria? And Jesus says, no, 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 you're, you're missing the point. I'm about to usher in a new era. So, something new is about to happen. In fact, it's already here where the, there's, there's going to be a new moment where where you worship is irrelevant. Location doesn't matter, but it's more how you worship that will matter. And it begins to make very clear. If you want to be, you want you to have your spiritual thirst quenched, you must worship in spirit and in truth. You must cultivate an environment where the spirit of God is a part of your life and where you know about who God is. You have a truthful understanding 
of who God is, his character and his nature, which is what it was like back in the Garden of Eden before sin. Jesus is declaring that there's a new era about to be ushered in where, where everyone will have access to God fully and permanently, regardless of your ethnic background, your race, your gender, or your own checkered past. And then Jesus makes it very clear, what does it mean to worship properly? I read verse 21 again. Jesus said to her, Woman, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Verse 23, he said this, But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. I'm just going to spend the last few minutes just kind of unpacking each one of those. What does it really mean to worship in spirit and in truth? I'm going to tackle truth first. To worship truthfully means that you have right information about who God is and that you, that you rightly understand the character of God, that you've got it right. See, the Jewish people got it right. They knew who God was. They had the right God. And, and they were right. The only place to properly worship in the Old Testament was in Jerusalem. That was the only place where the permanent presence of God existed. They were right. The Samaritans, they're doctrinally, they were wrong. They were off here. They weren't worshiping in truth. Worshiping God in truth is to know who he actually is and to love him for that. Let me give you an example. Let's say there's a, a married man in this place who's married to a woman who has brown eyes. I'm sure there are some men in the room. You're married to a woman who has brown eyes. Imagine you come home from work one day and you sit down on the couch next to your honey and you say, baby, and you look right in the eyes, baby, I love your blue eyes. You're just so gorgeous. You're so beautiful. I love you. Would she feel loved in that moment? She would say, who are you talking about? That ain't truth. I don't have blue eyes. Who you been looking at? This would not go well for him at home. Because there's a form of adoration and love that is trying being poured out, but it's being poured out toward the object of affection in a way that is not truthful. You're worshiping something that's actually not true. And that's what the Samaritans were doing. They were worshiping God for things that wasn't true about him. God's not going, oh, it's okay as long as you worship me. God's going, no, 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 no. I don't got blue eyes, brother. Don't worship me like that. And there are many churches in our in our society today that worship a God that they have fashioned of their own image. They worship a God that doesn't exist. If you worship a false version of God, you're not worshiping God. People say this, people do this all the time. They, they, they basically say what God is not when he is that. People will say, well, God would never send people to hell. I refuse to believe that. That's not a truthful version of God that you're worshiping there. People say, you know, when it comes to like the doctrine of election or predestination, people say, God would, would never refuse not to elect everyone. Okay, well, that, that's not what we see in the scripture. Or I've got a really good friend of mine who lives in Houston. He's a friend of mine who's gay. And he tells me, he looked me right in the eyes. He goes, I don't believe that God would say that I can't marry whoever I want. What's wrong? It's, just, it's all about love. Isn't God love? I say, brother, you're, you've got a vision of God that's not accurate. Or people say, Christianity is too narrow. There's no way it's the only way to heaven. Where I've had, I've had conversations with some of my atheist friends that have still, they'll say, they'll say there's, there's no way that your God is who he says he is or that he's even real because there's so much evil in the world. See, they have fashioned for themselves an image that, that, that God would never allow evil. They have made up their own version of God and they're worshiping a false version of God. That is not worshiping in truth. 
St. Augustine, the famous 4th century philosopher and theologian, early church father, he said this, if you believe what you like in the Gospels and reject what you do not like in the Gospels, it is not the Gospel that you believe, but yourself. If you look at God and say, I like that about God and I'll worship that, but I don't like that about God, I'm going to get rid of that, you're not worshiping God. You're worshiping yourself. You're worshiping what you have made God out to be. I heard people say all the time, my God wouldn't do that. Yeah, maybe your God would not. You're right. But the God of the Bible would. And if your God and the God of the Bible don't match, you're not worshiping God. You're worshiping an idol. Lots of people fashion God into their own image. And if you worship a God you have fashioned, you are worshiping a false God. To worship with right truth, with doctrine, with theology that is accurate, truly understanding the character and nature of God for who he actually is and adoring him for that, not in spite of it, is worshiping God in truth. Lots of churches in our society get this way wrong. Way wrong. The second portion I want to hit on is worshiping God in spirit. And this is probably where I am often a failure, if I'm honest. And I think, I think we as a congregation, we're probably pretty solid in truth area. Maybe we're not perfect, but I think I, I'm pretty excited to know that I think this is a congregation where we worship in truth well. But I think maybe, maybe in the spirit areas, maybe where some of us might lack, I think. Particularly those of us who embrace the doctrines of grace, Reformed theology, those of us who love theology and doctrine, sometimes I think we fail in this area. I know I do. To worship in spirit is to worship in a way that's empowered by the Spirit of God, where you have a communion with God, where you hang out with the Spirit of God, where the Spirit of God is invited into your life, where you're consulting with the Spirit of God, where you're hanging out with Him, you're talking to Him, where He's leading you. The Apostle Paul says in Galatians to keep in step with the Spirit. It's actually a sports analogy he's using there. He's talking about runners. Uh, several years ago, I, was, uh, I ran two half marathons. That was uh, several pounds ago, so I know it doesn't seem like it. But I, when I was running, I'd try to run with someone alongside me, a par- running partner. And when you run with a partner, you try to keep in step with that partner, meaning you're running at the same pace they are, and you're being intentional. Paul is saying, be intentional in running alongside the Holy Spirit. Don't get lazy where you get aloof and you kind of get off track, or you kind of fall behind, or don't try to get ahead of him live your life focused and intentional every day where you are talking to the Holy Spirit and communing with the Spirit of God. So those of us who are part of the Reform movement, I think sometimes we have our own Holy Trinity, right? God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Bible. We have a Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Bible. Newsflash to my Reformed brethren, the Holy Bible is not in the Trinity. It's the Holy Spirit. And I think sometimes we can be a little bit off in that. We, <clears throat> I think sometimes we look at our, some, of the, some of the charismatic Christian churches in America and we go, man, they're crazy, they've gotten it wrong. And I go, yeah, may, maybe some of them have gotten it crazy and gotten it wrong. But, but, but there's an emphasis on engaging with the Holy Spirit. And that, my friends, is a very good thing. And I think those of us who come from reform movement or embrace reform doctrine, I think we can learn from our charismatic brethren in that regard. Yeah, maybe some of them do it crazy. But you know what? Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Like, don't throw away the Holy Spirit just because some people do it wrong. That's silly. 
To worship in spirit means to cultivate an environment where the spirit of God is a part of your life and you're truly worshiping him empowered by his spirit. Francis Chan, a famous author, wrote a book a couple years ago called The Forgotten God. And he says the most neglected portion of American Christianity is the power of the Holy Spirit. See, God the Father is seeking worshipers that not only have good doctrine and embrace good truth, yes, but he is also looking for worshipers that embrace the empowerment of the Holy Spirit and to cultivate a companionship with the Holy Spirit. A friend of mine uh, says this. He says, talks about living life by the power of the nudge. He's like, I live my life sometimes and I just, God just nudges me throughout the course of my day. And I, I thought, I, I kind of get that. Now, the best way that God nudges us is through the Bible. We read through the scriptures and the Holy Spirit speaks to us and it's awesome and it's beautiful. And we, we can sense his spirit. Sometimes God speaks to us through other people. Sometimes through a sermon. Sometimes through a book. Sometimes through a song. There are a variety of ways. Sometimes there's a direct impression the Holy Spirit speaks to us. We ought to cultivate an environment where we are consulting with the Holy Spirit every single day. Every minute of every day if we can. And worship God with the empowerment of his Holy Spirit. Because true worshipers worship God in spirit and in truth. The only way to have your spiritual thirst quenched is to worship God in spirit and in truth. See, the Jewish people, they lacked spirit. They, they, they had the right doctrine, the right truth, but their hearts were far from God. They were not empowered by the spirit. The Samaritans, like many pagan cultures, were very open to the spiritual world. Lots of spirit, but they had wrong doctrine. They didn't have truth. So when you don't have the right truth, you, you start engaging with the spirit, you're going to start engaging with the wrong spirit. Not the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is saying, listen, the Jews have gotten it wrong. The Samaritans have gotten it wrong. I'm ushering in a new era where I'm bringing clarity to this. True worshipers worship me in spirit and in truth. Let me close with this. The woman then says in verse 25, she says, I know the Messiah is coming. When he comes, he's going to tell us all things. She's like, there's going to come a moment where the Messiah is going to come. He's going to explain all this. He's going to set it straight, right? He's going to, he's going to kind of bring an end to this debate. and He's going to fix all of this. And Jesus says to her in verse 26, I who speak to you am he. Because I know the Messiah is going to come and fix this. He goes, yeah, that's me. I have come to usher in a new era. Jesus is our rescuer. Jesus is our only source of satisfaction. He is the only thing, the only being in all of, uh, in, uh, in anything we have access to that can satisfy the spiritual thirst of our souls. Let us worship him in spirit and in truth. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you, are us you have ushered in a new era where we worship you in spirit and in truth. God, I pray you would help us be truthful in our worship of you. Help us to have right beliefs, right doctrine about who you are, to embrace who you say you are and not fashion our own image of you. And Lord, may we, may we worship in spirit. May we do whatever it takes to cultivate an environment where, where we consult with you, where we are empowered by you, where we are keeping in step with the spirit. We are being intentional and focused on consulting with you and allowing your spirit to flood our lives. God, we welcome you and invite you into every every corner, every, every part of our lives. We pray you would permeate every part of our souls way beyond what we ever thought was possible. 
God, would you bring conviction to our lives and things we need to eliminate or eradicate that maybe are getting in the way of being empowered by your spirit? And Lord, maybe give us the courage and the audacity to implement things in our lives that maybe need to be implemented so that we can cultivate a better companionship with the spirit of God. Holy Spirit, forgive us for neglecting you. And would you come and flood our souls? Give us the ability to be empowered by you so that we could worship God properly both in spirit and in truth. Father, guide us, nudge us, draw us, transform us, lead us in the direction you want us to go so that we will be genuine worshipers of you, I pray. In Christ's name, amen.